This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. Doctors Against Lockdowns, there are growing numbers of doctors speaking out against lockdown measures, saying the science simply doesn't back up these draconian measures. So we'll talk to the latest voice from the front lines. The first Boeing Max 737 takes off Thursday in Canada. You getting on one of these things? We speak to the father of one of those killed on the downed Ethiopian flight who doesn't trust this plane. And why aren't we getting the vaccines from Pfizer? Well, it seems the pharma giant may want something from the Trudeau government to make it worth doing business. Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? So just a goodbye. We love you. We will be back in some form. So have a good life. We will see you soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Donald Trump triggers the left, leaves the building, but his movement lives on. Meanwhile, the left finally celebrates after four years of throwing temper tantrums. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. I, Kamala Davy Harris, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution. Will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. We celebrate a new president, Joe Biden, and we celebrate our first woman vice president who vows to restore the soul of America and cross the river of our divides to a higher plane. And that was that. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, January 20th. Lots of news tonight. Lots going on today. We'll talk about a lot of other stuff than the inauguration. But uh, all I can say is, may we just see some calm and sanity replace the chaos? I mean, really, after today, can we just actually start focusing on Canadian issues? Because there's a lot going on in this country. We have a lot of problems that have been overshadowed by all the noise. And frankly, I mean, Justin Trudeau should be dreading today because, you know, as long as Trump was in charge, his... Countless failings got a pass. But now it's all smiles as Sleepy Joe is sworn in. He's now the 46th president. It'll be interesting to see if he gets nearly the scrutiny. I wonder if, like, Daniel Dale will be fact-checking everything he says. I, I somehow doubt that's going to happen. But regardless of your views, it was an historic day. Certainly not your normal inauguration. No big crowds. Uh, Trump skipped the day, which is a first. But I don't, like, did anyone expect him to go? I mean, it was clear he wasn't wanted there. So... He broke with tradition, albeit we are told he did leave a letter for Joe Biden on the uh, Oval Office desk. And I, I don't know. I'd love to know what he said. I mean, if it's nice, you know it'll never get open. But um, we'll see what happens. But I did watch. Uh, there were some nice moments. I think maybe the, the nicest of those moments coming from the youngest poet, Laurier, who is a 22-year-old named Amanda Gorman. 
Even as we grieved, we grew, that even as we hurt, we hoped, that even as we tired, we tried, that we'll forever be tied together, victorious, not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. So her poem was called The Hill We Climb, and uh, she's just 22, and she's already done quite a lot. But she suffered from a, stu- a stutter, much like Joe Biden did as a child. And if you heard her talk today, boy, uh, she's, uh, she's overcome that. I mean, I thought she was lovely, and I thought it was a lovely moment. Um, other than that, I tried to keep my eyes open. i got to be honest. And if you listen to my show, then you know I barely talked about Trump, because I, I first of all think we should focus on our own failures, I know a lot of Canadians are absolutely thrilled to see him go, but they still don't seem to either care or understand how he came to be. And it's not because America is a country made up of racists and neo-Nazis. It's just not. Uh, you know, it's because Trump tapped into an anger that those in charge, I think, are still blind to. And that is a lot of people who feel ignored. They feel they have no voice. They're tired of the upper echelons getting all the attention. And they're tired of politicians who promise to serve you know, us, and then serve themselves. So for me, talking about Trump is like a third rail. You know, you've got the crowd obsessed in their hate for him. Then there are those who thought he walked on water and ignored the obvious issues. And then you had those like me who turned out the noise and just gave credit where it was due. But I mean, God, to talk about Trump was just impossible because very few are actually willing to have an actual conversation or to understand why he came to be. And, you know, 75 million Americans, and that's not a small number, 75 million Americans voted for Trump. And now Joe Biden's their president, and he gets a very divided country. And those people are not dumb. Like I said, they're not racists. They're not knuckle-draggers like all the left would like to think. I mean, a lot of people who voted for Trump had to because he was the only choice. And they weren't going to vote for Hillary Clinton. And so today Biden used his speech to try and, and... Set a new tone. Through civil war, the Great Depression, World War, 9-11, through struggle, sacrifice, and setbacks, our better angels have always prevailed. In each of these moments, enough of us, enough of us have come together to carry all of us forward. And we can do that now. History, faith, and reason show the way, the way of unity. We can see each other, not as adversaries, but as neighbors. We can treat each other with dignity and respect. We can join forces, stop the shouting, and lower the temperature. For without unity, there is no peace, only bitterness and fury. No progress, only exhausting outrage. No nation, only a state of chaos. So, you know, he uses his speech, uh, it struck all the right notes, he said all the right words, but look, unless he and his administration understand what led to the chaos, he's not going to unite America. Because there's going to be some form of Trump that will still exist. I don't know if it'll be him, his kids, whatever. I mean, and those who are so sick of identity politics and the, the constant finger wagging by those who keep telling us, you know, what we can say, what we can't say, how we should behave, what we can believe in, what we can't, you know, the whole cancel culture crap, whatever offense. I mean, that's going to stick with him. They're going to stick with Trump or a Trump type because they're sick of it. And so, yeah, a lot of Canadians really happy to see Trump go. Prime Minister gleefully tweeting his support. And um, 
you know, despite the fact that Biden, Biden hadn't even been sworn in, basically, and he made his first act on the job of killing Keystone Pipeline. And I mean, a lot of people say, well, so what? I don't care. Well, you should. It's a big up yours to Canada. And there are other pipelines under threat. I mean, the Enbridge 5 pipeline, which, again, people go, who cares? Well, it cuts through Michigan and powers Pearson Airport and huge portions of Toronto and Ontario. And it's on the cancellation list, too. You got TransCanada, which we bought for, you know, what, $4.5 billion. That dips through Washington. That's also under threat. And then there's a pipeline from Alberta to Alaska that Trump approved. All those could be canceled because Biden has to pander to the socialist side of his base. And you might not care about it now, but if that Line 5 out of Michigan's canceled, I mean, Ontarians will lose thousands of jobs and half our energy. And so there will be things like fuel shortages. So, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, hate Trump, but Biden is no savior to this country. And so we'll see some breathless reporting, and I certainly hope it stops after today on this, because I think it's time to focus on what is and what is not happening in Canada. You know, we learned today that kids in the GTHA are going to be out of school for weeks longer. We'll talk about that in a minute. It means that draconian business is likely staying in lockdown longer. You know, that mental health is going to continue to suffer. And the biggest story, you know, again, that should be getting the focus is that we have no vaccines coming. And now we know that the prime minister isn't even trying to get deliveries because as we learned from the procurement minister who talked to the CBC last night, he's not even bothering to pick up the phone. Is that a no, Minister? And I'm asking because the president of the European Union uh, spoke directly with Pfizer. The prime minister of Israel uh, has said that he's had 17 conversations with the CEO of Pfizer. Has the prime minister directly spoken to the CEO or has all communication gone through you? Well, I am leading this file and I am very happy to do so on behalf of Canadians. It's indeed an honour, even on the most difficult of days. It is an honour for me to make sure that I can use my skills at the bargaining table to ensure that we are getting vaccines in the arms of Canadians and we will continue to do that. So again, that's a no. Is that correct? Well, I thank you for the question. (laughs) Jeez. Wow. If you could see the TV moment, that was like a deer caught in headlights. Yes or no? Has Mr. Trudeau called Pfizer? It's not a hard question. Thank you for the question. Thank you for the question. That's a big, no, he hasn't. It's not a good look. I mean, it's astonishing, actually. I mean, we had a chance to buy an additional 16 million doses of Moderna and said no to that. Now we've got this global vaccine company cutting off vaccine supplies, and we've got a prime minister who apparently has all the time in the world to kiss up to the U.N., or tweet about the new president who just canceled a pipeline that kills jobs in our country, but he can't be bothered to pick up the phone to fight for vaccines for this country. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu called uh, Pfizer 17 times to ensure supply. And then I don't know if you heard it last night, I predicted who will pick up the phone today? Premier Ford. He'll light a firecracker. That'd be up that guy's yin-yang so far with a firecracker, he wouldn't know what hit him. Yeah, he was. Not a good look for Trudeau that a premier's got to do what should have been done months ago. And instead, all we do is buy up these stupid, vacuous talking points about our big portfolio. Do your damn job, buddy. Do your job. We will, of course, talk about this uh, in the show because one of the reasons we might not be getting shipments is because Pfizer is, um, they want Trudeau to stop making it harder for global, global multinationals to do business here. You know, Canada no longer invests or innovates or competes when it comes to these farmer production companies in this country. That's why Big Pharma is basically ignoring Canada, doing business elsewhere. And then, you know, maybe that's why they're not in such a rush to do us any favors. Maybe they're just saying, look, make it worth our while. Because right now it ain't. I'm so excited about tomorrow. 7 p.m. 
we are getting the greatest minds in Ontario to talk about the path forward with COVID. And the reason we're doing this is we've been challenged in, in a lot of ways to say, you know, yeah, you're against these, some of these restrictions, the lockdowns, the school, uh, school closures, but what is the suggestion? What should we actually do about it? So we've been pushed, so we're going to come up with solutions at 7 p.m. tomorrow. Well, that was the voice of a critical care doctor who is joining a growing chorus of voices now speaking out against lockdown measures, arguing that they do more harm than good. And they're going to be holding a panel discussion tomorrow on Facebook to talk about COVID solutions that don't come with all the collateral damage. You know, we're starting to get more and more voices from the medical community that are speaking up about this because they don't feel that the decisions being made are actually backed by strong science. One of the new voices that we're hearing from is Dr. Kwajo Kiramantang. He's a critical care palliative and pain doctor in the Ottawa area. He joins us now. Good to have you, doctor. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. So, you know, we're this event that you're holding tomorrow on Thursday is a Facebook event, but you're speaking out, um, and, and a number of doctors have started speaking out, but there's no question, uh, unless you can tell me I'm wrong, that there is a divide in the medical community on lockdown measures. Yeah, I think what, you know, it's, there is a divide, and I often wonder how much is related to people that are actually living and, and dealing with COVID on a regular basis versus those that are able to, you know, make an opinion while they're getting paid on, and, and doing their Zoom meetings. Because um, honestly, the, the, my major concern has always been when it comes to public health, Alex, is that it's supposed to be all of health. And so, yes, mm-hmm. COVID is a major concern. It's scary. It is, it's a deadly virus that we need to address. But what about everything else? What about how are we going to manage our children? How are we going to manage their, mm-hmm. their health, their mental health, the uh, overdoses that we're seeing, um, the uh, mental illness issues, the early in the pandemic, the cancer screening and, 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 and surgeries were being delayed. We never had any discussions about that. Even um, I want you to think about one thing, too, like early in the pandemic, especially when kids were were had a prolonged stay at home you know we yeah. got to interview some of the some docs that uh, deal with child abuse and cases were up you know case, yeah. like, these kids are at home with their abuser with no one to talk to not their coach not their teacher and we're not doing anything about it we're not addressing it and so for me it's all about looking at things holistically and having those discussions and when it comes down to our approach to COVID-19, attacking it where the problems lie, not doing some of these low-yield interventions. Yeah, I mean, if some of the schools are going to open back up, uh, but the major hot zones, areas like Toronto, are going to stay closed down longer. I can only speak for my own child and what I'm witnessing there. And there's a lot of loneliness. And I'm lucky because at least I can work out of home and stay, you know, try to keep an eye on them. But you're right. There are, you know, those in the margins. There's uh, those in lower income uh, communities that are falling through the cracks, dropping out, not getting breakfast uh, programs. And then you speak mm-hmm. to the issues um, of abuse. There's also domestic abuse. And those children are stuck in those ones. But it never gets reported. And I feel like we are picking winners and losers in this pandemic and not admitting to ourselves that we are. I just, I just like you said, Alex, we just need to have these discussions and, and illustrate where the problems are so we could do something about it. You know, like when you have those children, children that are, you know, as you said, breakfast programs that aren't able to, you know, uh, 
families not able to make ends meet, like, why aren't we subsidizing them? Why aren't we ensuring that that family's got paid leave, which honestly would be a, a solution even for the, the spread of COVID. Um, for example, if you are a, uh, an essential worker that is living often in multi-generational home and you can't afford to take time off work, it's quite unlikely that you're going to take time to go get tested. And even if you do get, uh, if you're positive, the idea of being off work for two weeks is, you know, prohibitive for you wanting to get tested. And then even if, you you know, some of these unfortunate uh, people, even after they've been isolated for two weeks, they might not have a job to go to. And so, like, really talking about where the, where the problems are so we could come up with solutions. And, um, to, you know, I just think, I don't know, it's just maybe it's the, um, it's the loudest voices seem to be, you know, we seem to be m- moving towards whatever those loud voices are saying without looking at the data and, and trying to be as objective as possible. Yeah, I mean, it looks like we've been in lockdown in certain areas of the province in Toronto. I feel like we've been locked down kind of forever. I don't see it ending anytime soon because the numbers are not coming down uh, where apparently they need to, which is under a thousand, according to Dr. Williams. I mean, th- when when I hear something like that, what I'm hearing is that we're going to be locked down for, for weeks, if not months more at this point. Um, and, and I don't think people will see the, the devastation um, possibly for months, if not years, because, you know, um, it, it takes a while for the damage to start appearing. I mean, no question we're seeing job losses, businesses being destroyed. Um, it might take a while for people to see the devastation that's being caused, but I don't know if we can turn some of this around. I mean, yes, eventually we'll build new businesses back, but the mental health issues, the opiate overdoses, what it's doing to kids, that will take a, uh, I think quite a while, I think, to start showing itself. Maybe that's why people don't, don't, don't have more opinions on lockdowns. Yeah, Alex, I think you nailed it with that uh, comment. It's people don't have it in front of them. They don't, it's hard to appreciate you know, when we're not reporting about uh, child maltreatment, when we're not talking about, you know, kids and issues with mental illness, we're not t- reporting, uh, you know, families that are struggling to make ends meet. It's not in front of them. It's not making the news. It's not making social media. And a lot of the devastations are going to be, you know, months and years down the road. But we need to, I, and I think this is why I feel so motivated to discuss these things is because, by increasing the awareness and forcing the government to uh, do our best to get the government to address them and, and to bring them up. It's like, you know, you, for example, Alex, you'll see all these modeling data for, you know, how busy the ICUs are going to be or what the cases are going to look like days to weeks from now. But where's the modeling for the second, the collateral damage? Like what's the modeling for the mental illness or the economic downturns or, uh, business closures and and so on like that's part of the the puzzle that's part of the equation we need to have when deciding when deciding what our next and best course of action is yeah i mean there there is a, a price to be paid i guess uh, people just think uh, we're going to pick either covid or, or something else but we don't have a real grasp on death case numbers or any of the things that, that you um, talk about um and, and we won't and i think when people finally get that kind of data they'll be um pretty, uh, you know, grossed out that we weren't more proactive in in being more measured. And so you and a number of other doctors are having this Facebook group tomorrow. Is this a public event? And how can people um, get on uh, to listen to you and and what you guys have to to say as far as solutions? Yeah, this is absolutely a public event. We're on uh, uh, facebook.com backslash 
Quadcast, K-W-A-D-C-A-S-T. It's the, the podcast that I, I, I um, organized called Solvent Healthcare. And there was a, a push I think I've seen on social, on social media where some of the media folks are saying, okay, you guys don't like these lockdowns or these restrictions. Give us solutions. Give us some concrete things to do. And I, I pushed my colleagues and say, you know what? Let's give them solutions. Let's give them answers, concrete answers to the way we think the best way forward is paid leave, rapid testing, for example. I just did an interview with somebody that uh, from a long-term care home doing rapid testing since late December, picking up cases early, avoiding major outbreaks. And I'm like, why is this not amplified? Mm-hmm. Why is this not? Yeah. Like, it's crazy. And so really giving some concrete stuff for people to refer to, talking about the data for it, why, you know, in my opinion, schools, especially in my area, should be open. Um mm-hmm. And and just nail it out and just have that discussion, have people that give the people opportunity to ask questions and give another side of the of the of the coin, which we we haven't uh, often heard about. Yeah, balance is an important thing, and we certainly are not getting it these days. So, uh, again, the event is Thursday, starts at 7 o'clock if you want to get in. And, Doctor, we will have you on again because uh, I'd like to talk about the solutions uh, once we get, um, you know, the thoughts of your doctors. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. I really appreciate the the time, Alex. Have a great rest of the day. All right, good to have you here on this Wednesday. The Boeing Max, the Air Max 737, to be specific, has been cleared to fly again by the Trudeau government. And Thursday, WestJet will put the first one back in the skies. I don't know about you, but are you comfortable getting on one of these things? I mean, this is a plane that was involved with two crashes just five months apart in 2019 that killed 346 people. And the plane has been grounded for two years with reviews and uh, changes made to the flaws that caused those crashes. But a number of families who lost loved ones on this model of airplanes simply don't trust the aircraft, feeling that the Trudeau government hasn't done nearly enough to make sure that regulations are updated and that more people could be killed because of this. And interestingly, when you look at the number of Canadians surveyed on this particular plane as to whether they'll get back aboard, 64% of Canadians say, thanks, but no thanks. Chris Moore uh, was father to Danielle, a 24-year-old who was on board that Ethiopian flight, killed along with 17 other Canadians. He joins us now. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. You have spoken out a number of times on this. I mean, your daughter was uh, just a baby, 24 years old, heading off to a meeting of the UN Environmental Assembly, probably the most excited she has been. Um, and, and she lost her life aboard that flight. And you still don't think they're, they're safe. But talk to us about her, um, the loss of her, um, and where you are now, um, you know, with that loss. Well, Danielle was a, a courageous leader, and um, she always was, you know, thinking about that the little guy. She was, um, you know, she was a champion for justice, and uh, she was an environmental activist. Um, she really kept, um, you know, friends with with many people. It, it didn't matter, you know, what side of the uh, the tracks you came from. Um, if you were an in- interesting individual, she would really love to get to know you and. Um, you know, you'd be having a a lot of good times and happy times with her. She was always uh, cracking jokes, and um, but she also had a very serious side of her as well. 
This happened back in 2019. It feels like a blink in the eye that when both of these flights went down and then COVID moved in. And I think you and probably many, many other families feel that that this has been overshadowed by a pandemic and maybe not getting the scrutiny it deserves. Where are, you know, you and the other families in feeling, A, there's been any justice in this particular issue and, and where um, the Canadian government is moving forward with getting those planes back in the sky? Well, first off, we, we all feel that it, there is no justice, um, you know, especially what the Department of Justice has uh, ruled or um, the plea bargain they allowed uh, Boeing to uh, to plea. Uh, that is a, a slap in our face. Um, with respect to the Transport Canada, uh, I think the problem that they're, they're faced with is that they, ha- they're, they have to abide by um, a... Uh, an airworthiness agreement that's a, a, a bilateral agreement with the United States FAA. And so their hands are tied. Um, they have to basically validate that plane uh, as it's presented to them for safety in uh, in Canada. Um, but there's all these little wiggle clauses in the regulations that allow it to, uh, a 50-year-old plane to still uh, fly in the, the air with grandfathered hazards. So we're, we, we don't feel good about that. Yeah, I mean, this was more than just a Boeing issue. This was a Federal Aviation Authority. And if the Federal Aviation Authority was shutting its eyes and uh, cutting corners um, and, and there hasn't been a, a complete structural overturn and rebuilding, I don't know how anyone can trust it. I mean, I'm not a great flyer at the best of times, but I'm, I simply will never get on one of these planes. Um, and it's not just that I worry that Boeing hasn't done its job, but I think a lot of people wonder, well, if the Federal Aviation Authority has turned its eye to, to the flaws of this aircraft, where else are they cutting corners? That's exactly correct. Uh, and in fact, even um, after the second crash, when Boeing was still trying to uh, impress upon FAA that uh, it's safe for uh, pilots, they were coaching or um, uh, telling the, the pilots what to expect in their uh, simulator test, uh, mm-hmm. which goes against what they're supposed to do. So they didn't have safety um, at the forefront either. So th- there's so many issues you just can't trust um, what's going on. Uh, there needs to be a wholesale change um, within FAA and with Boeing. And uh, we I need mean, to rip up the the agreement. Yeah, I mean, there haven't been any charges, which, you know, I think were we not dealing with COVID, maybe there would have been more pressure and certainly more eyes on the issue to, to put that pressure on it. But there really hasn't been accountability. And I know that you and a number of other families have been pushing for an independent inquiry, and yet that is not even a thought on the radar. That is correct. And, um, well, because we... We, we we think that the we should get a, a, a an independent panel of um, experts to look after the uh, the uh, the Boeing seven thirty seven Max, uh, mm-hmm. and not just the MCAS. We want the entire plane looked at. Uh, this plane does not, as we said, uh, does not meet the uh, safety standards. And if uh, if what Transport Canada says is true, that they want to change the uh, change product rule. Start with this plane. This plane would not be able to be certified or validated under the current um, safety standards. 
And, you know, what goes for Canada and the United States, you know, as far as changes may not be implemented in other countries where you have, let's say, a, a third world country or a country that um, might not have, I guess, customer safety uh, first of mind or may not have the economic structure behind it like a Canadian or American company. I think that is a concern. But at the end of the day, uh, Canadians fly out of other countries on these aircraft. And if they don't have the same protocols, uh, changes to training and structures in place, uh, we might or could get a, a repeat of, of history. That is correct. And that's why it is so important to ensure that the plane is safe. Um, we need to make sure that the pilots are given um, the safest plane that they can can fly. And, you know, if you were to look at all the procedures that they have to go through with the 737 MAX, uh, mm -hmm. just because of the uh, this whole issue with the, um, the angle of attack sensors and, um, you know, the runaway stabilizer, it's just, you know, um, they're not given the best product to fly this plane. And uh, like I said, this is a 50-year-old plane right now, and it's going to limp on into another couple more decades. And the flyers will, be have, will have to take this, um, this type of plane if they want to get somewhere, you know, eventually, because it will be, um, be one of the most popular ones, as they, uh, they say. You know, it's um, a personal, personal fight for you and the other families, um... You know, but you can't get change without that fight. Do you believe in time or at some point that there will be justice for your daughter and the others on that plane and on and, and on the other uh, aircraft that went down as well? Yeah, I I have to remain uh, hopeful. I'm I'm sort of channel, channeling my uh, my daughter's spirit, and she was all about uh, hope, peace, and love. And um, so I have to remain uh, hopeful. And I think that that's about the only thing that keeps me going um, because it doesn't look good right now, what's happening in mm -hmm. the States and even within our country. Um, you know, it, it's it's all about the industry. Um, but yeah. as long as I'm I'm keeping on going, I'm not um, I'm not standing still there. There's hope. And that's the only way I can look at it. And I, I just hope that. Uh, we can make a change. Um, hopefully, you make uh, some changes uh, into safety in Canada and uh, around the world. And uh, yeah, we remain hopeful. We have to. Well, I thank you for um, speaking out. We'll continue speaking out because stories like this just haven't gotten the uh, attention they deserve and would normally get if not for COVID, which I'm sure has just not just wreaked havoc in your lives as everyone else, but certainly interrupted in the grief and, uh, and the loss of your daughter. So I thank you, Chris, for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Alex. Chris Moore joining us here tonight. Still fighting a good fight. And again, this is another story like Flight 752 like so many other big stories that just have not gotten the attention because COVID takes up all the oxygen in the room. But remember, this particular flight, this particular plane takes off tomorrow with WestJet. And um, whether or not uh, the changes that needed to be made have been made, I guess time will tell. I just hope that we don't learn again um, the hard way as we do so often. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, we know the Prime Minister has not picked up the phone to pressure Pfizer. Uh, maybe he doesn't have to. It seems that what Pfizer really actually wants, according to the Globe and Mail, is for Justin Trudeau to make it worth doing business in this country. And apparently they've been asking the Liberal government to cut or freeze corporate taxes and offer tax breaks in the 2021 budget. 
they also want to uh, the prime minister stop making it so hard for global multinationals to do business here. And we've talked about this on the show before. And a big reason we don't have vaccines here now is because we can't make them. And that's because Canada don't, no longer invests, uh, innovates, or even seems to want to compete when it comes to pharma pro- you know, production in this country. And that's why, you know, big pharma is turning away from doing business here. And maybe why Pfizer isn't in a rush to pick up the phone or do us any favors. Mark Warner is an interna- international competition trade and investment lawyer. He joins us now. Good to have you, Mark. Nice to be here. So the prime minister has not picked up the phone to call Pfizer and, you know, vaccines stop delivery um, next week. And then we get this tidbit that, you know, maybe a big pharma company like Pfizer is saying, well, look, make it worth our while. And, you know, is that is this normal what you would see? So what I think is really going on here is my take on it is that um, that the Canada tried to insulate itself from the risk of Donald Trump, if you like, in the sense of Donald Trump, the idea that he might he might stop supply of vaccines from the United States um, on a particular vaccine. And so what they did is when they negotiated these uh, agreements with pharmaceutical companies, they seem to have emphasized that the sourcing where possible would come from outside of the United States. So in the case of Pfizer, mm-hmm. it's as a partner with a German company, BioNTech. Actually, the mRNA vaccine is actually BioNTech, the German company's vaccine. They just had never produced anything, so they wanted to partner with a much larger pharmaceutical company to get it done. So Canada is being sourced from Europe. And if you understand from where our geography is, normally the, our, our supply channels are north-south. They're not really across the ocean for something like that. And so what he did, I think the problem is Pfizer had to really ramp up in Europe with BioNTech. And as a consequence of that, they have to basically shut down some of their production in order to build, to get the plants to capacity that they could, they could, they could, uh, they could produce more of the vaccine. And part of that is there's a shortage of, of these vaccines in Europe, in continental Europe, particularly in Germany. And Germany is saying, wait a second, we funded BioNTech. We go first. And by the way, we're actually got fewer shots in the arms than Canadians have. So when and the head of the European Union is German. So my, my take on what's really going on here was the Trudeau government at the very start of this, they made a they made a bet that they could somehow go around Trump. And I contrast this with the automobile file that I worked on, you know, 10 years ago, where Stephen Harper said, I may not like Barack Obama, but I want to get in the tent with the Americans. So we mm-hmm. paid, we paid 20% of whatever the cost of that restructuring was in order to guarantee we'd have an auto industry. That was an option. It would be a difficult option, I guess, for a liberal government. Maybe some people argue Trump is even more mercurial than Obama, and you could never trust him to do that. But whatever the reason, we tried to go around them. We had this deal with a Chinese company in the summer, which fell through, and they were going to talk about building up capacity to do vaccines on our own in Montreal. But again, with what? (laughs) You you don't have the company's resources. So along the sort of it is, that's kind of what, what I think is really going on here. Now, when you add to that, all of that is the back against all of that, Major pharmaceutical companies don't love Canada because of the intellectual property rules. They think that we are not mm-hmm. very strong on it. They don't like Canada because of our tax rules um, and the positions that we take in international organizations like the OECD with things like transfer pricing, where you know, a lot of pharmaceutical companies route their stuff through, let's say, Ireland or low-cost jurisdictions in the Caribbean, and they allocate profits to places like that. And, and Canada, they think, is coming down hard on that. And so if you add together all of that, you know, all of that stuff, a smaller market, uh, 
a market that's perceived as wanting to control prices. The latest proposal from the Liberals is to set prices in Canada uh, by a basket of countries that really can that really include countries that don't have prices that uh, like the United States or Switzerland, which are considered to be high price countries. But those are also mm-hmm. countries that respect intellectual property for pharmaceutical companies. So if you only set the prices in Canada with relative, with respect to benchmarking it against countries that don't respect intellectual property, you're going to have the prices go down in Canada and the companies are saying, wait a sec, what, what is that? So that's the backdrop. So when you start to ask for favors from a company like Pfizer, um, they say, well, look, we're, we have an agreement with you. We're selling pursuant to the agreements. You're being sourced out of Europe. You know, everybody's getting slowed down. We're getting stuff from Germans. They want more. And by the way, you're not a great place to do business in. You know? So I think right. it's not that that's the, it's not the main cost, but there's no question that it is, it is the background. I know I can tell you that before I returned to Canada to practice law, I, you know, I used to represent a fairly major multinational client. And when I told them that I was thinking of coming back to join a Canadian law firm, they said, okay, well, you just tell us which, which companies that law firm works at. They gave me a list. And they said, if your law firm works for ABC Canadian generic manufacturing company, we're not going to do any business with you. (laughs) And they listed those companies plus two other Indian companies. So that may sound strange to Canadian ears, but that's how global pharmacies Canada. They see us as kind of a lawless country when it comes to pharmaceuticals. Yeah, and we're going to pay the price. And I don't think the policy that the liberals are kind of putting through right now with the lower drug prices, while it sounds good to voters, what it is doing is just cementing, um, you know, our position when it comes to pharma. And that is that we do not want it here. We don't care about it. And so we'll continually have to rely on others to get it. I don't know if this will change, given what we've now got in front of us, the fact that we can't make these vaccines and now we're fighting with the rest of the world on it. But right now, Canada, as you well know, has a reputation that pharma isn't welcome. We don't want it. And we don't want, uh, you know, choice or, um, you know, the best drugs at our disposal. We'll, we'll just sell cheap drugs and be very limited with what we can bring into the country. So what's scary about this to me is when I start reading, it's like, you know, reading paper, anything in the paper it sounds like we're returning to the 1970s. I know the first Trudeau who sort of set us down this task. So we started to really pursue building Apotex, right? The great Canadian generic manufacturer, yep. drug manufacturer. And that's what really got the pharmaceutical companies upset because the re- what they call the research-based or the innovation-based pharmaceutical companies said, well, wait a sec, you've got this big national champion that has its sole existence is to rip off our intellectual property. So a lot, of, and that's why big pharma said, well, we're out. <laughs> we're not going to build R&D facilities in your country if you're, if you're going to basically your policy is really to promote that that company. And if you go through right. the, the federal court uh, um, docket, you'll see under A, how many cases have to deal with Apotex. That gives you a sense of it. So the challenge that I hear when I listen to people, a lot of people think, well, why can't we build our own capacity, like have a national champion? And you think, well, who actually generated this? There's a small German company called BioNTech that came up with the mRNA vaccine but had no capacity and had to join with an American company. So even if you have this kind of ability to do this, even those companies had to go off and do someone else. Oxford University, the other one people talk about, they had a nice little thing that they came up with, but they had no capacity to do it. They had to join with AstraZeneca. And that sort of gives you, you know, gives you an example of when people say, well, let's just do it ourselves. There's no guarantee, even if you did that, you could actually produce. And then we're a country of 38 million people, 
So, okay, who are you going to sell to? Because 38 million people is not going to generate a lot of vaccines. We're a high-cost country. That's not going to change with taxes, wages, whatever. And so you're going to have to export. But if you're sitting in Canada trying to develop a global pharmaceutical champion that's going to ship cutting-edge drugs and vaccines around the world, something's got to give, right? It's going to have to give on the tax rate. It's going to have to give on the wage rate. So we don't have a really coherent, joined-up conversation about any of this. And what scares me, I hear the kind of nationalist chants from the 1970s starting up again. And that's what got us into this mess in the first place. To begin with, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, hey, now the premier's making calls, so maybe that'll change things. Um, I'm up against the uh, clock, Mark, but I appreciate your expertise on this. Thanks, Chatting. That is Mark Warner, who uh, knows what he's talking about because this is his area of expertise when it comes to international uh, competition. You can join us, of course, Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.